0: Welcome to Australia On This Day. My name's Michael Adams and today we're going back to Tuesday the 19th of July, 1960. That was the day that Australia's first skyjacking took place at 20,000 feet above the far north coast of New South Wales. At around 8 o'clock that night, Captain John Benton and Flight Officer Tom Bennett taxied the Trans-Australia Airlines Lockheed Electra Mark II, designated Flight 408, along a runway at Sydney's mascot airport. Valued at £1.1 million, TAA had only just taken charge of the plane a year earlier. It was a beautiful aircraft, four-propped with silver undercarriage and day-glow orange tail and livery. Four months earlier, this plane had set the Melbourne to Perth speed record at 4 hours and 38 minutes, which is pretty good time even today. But this, the last Sydney to Brisbane flight of the night, was a far more laid-back affair. Flight 408 was soon airborne, bound for Eagle Farm Airport. Also aboard were flight engineer Fred MacDonald, and travelling in the forward passenger cabin was an off-duty TAA pilot named Dennis Lawrence. Two hostesses, Faye Strugnell and Janine Christie, were looking after the other 43 passengers. Seven in that forward cabin, and the rest in the larger rear one. One of those in the forward cabin was a man named Alex Hildebrandt. He drew the hosties' attention early in the flight because he seemed ill at ease. Alex had been born in Russia in 1938, and soon after, his anti-Soviet father moved the family to Germany where they apparently spent the duration of the war in labour camps. When the war was over, they emigrated to Australia in 1950 as displaced persons and did it tough in migrant camps in country Victoria and New South Wales. Alex's childhood didn't include much in the way of an education. So, as what was then called a new Australian, he worked odd labouring jobs, including in Cooma, likely on the Snowy Hydro Scheme. The family moved to Riverston in Western Sydney and Alex's father died around 1958. But Alex, who was now 20, didn't really step up as the man of the house. Instead, he was frustrated by being relegated to doing road work by the Employment Bureau. And he was a bit of a no-good Nick, convicted of breaking and entering and assaulting a woman. By 1960, he'd been out of work for four months. He was still living with his mother in Riverston and dependent on her for paying his way, including his court fines, the most recent of which had been for fare evasion. In Alex Hildebrandt's way of looking at things, everything that was happening to him was everybody else's fault, and Australia was at fault most of all. Even after a decade, he hated the place. So Alex hatched a harebrained scheme to get himself to where the going was best of all, and to his mind... That was Communist China and then the Soviet Union. On the 19th of July 1960, Mrs. Hildebrandt gave her son £18. This money was meant to pay for that fair evasion fine and to pay off a suit. Instead, Alex got himself a few final supplies, sticking plaster and a duffel coat, and headed to Sydney Airport wearing that unpaid-for suit. Out at Mascot, he spent the remainder of his mum's money on an air ticket to Brisbane. Commercial passenger aviation in mid-1960 wasn't by any means the low-risk proposition it has been recently. Planes crashed far more frequently. But what people didn't have to worry about were hijackings or terrorism. Such events were rare and, when they did happen, relatively benign and in places in the world that didn't merit much Western media coverage. During the entire 1950s, there had been just four reported passenger aircraft hijackings, one each in Czechoslovakia, Burma, Hungary and Brazil. All of these had been politically motivated and all had ended without violence once the hijackers landed, escaped or received political asylum. No shots had been fired and no bombs had been involved. All of which is to say that on the 19th of July 1960, the possibility of an Australian skyjacking or any form of airborne terrorism was so remote that security at Mascot Airport was virtually non existent. What's in your hand luggage? That wasn't a question you'd be asked because your hand luggage was your business. As he walked on to TAA Flight 408 on the night of the 19th of July, Alex Hildebrand's hand luggage contained a fully loaded Sawn-Off 22 caliber rifle and another full magazine. He had two sticks of gelignite fitted with blasting caps, a detonator, wires and a battery. Alex had seen a lot of explosives being used down in Kuma. He knew how to rig up a bomb, and just to be sure he was doing it right, that day at Riverston, he'd done a test, wiring up a battery to a detonator that was inserted into a stick of gelignite. When he touched the fuse wires together, it had gone... Just after nine that night, about 50 minutes into the flight, when the plane was nearly over Casino in far northern New South Wales, Alex went to the bathroom and rigged up his bomb. Returning to his seat in that forward cabin, he placed the bomb under a newspaper in the empty seat next to him and pressed the hostess call button. Faye Strugnell responded. In a split second, Alex became Australia's first skyjacker when he pulled out his 22 sawn off and levelled it a few inches from her head. He said, quote, Get the captain, we're not going to Brisbane. Fellow hostess Janine Christie was similarly menaced and then she went to the cockpit. Her terror convinced Captain Benton that this, a hijacking 20,000 feet above the ground, was really happening. But he couldn't leave the controls. As good as the plane was, it didn't fly itself, so he sent back flight engineer Frederick McDonald. Alex threatened this man with the gun, showed him the bomb, and demanded that the airliner be diverted to Singapore. Fred McDonald said he'd have to check with the captain to see if that was possible. Hearing this, in the cockpit, Captain Benton turned the plane out to sea. That way, if the hijacker looked out the windows, he wouldn't see the lights of Brisbane, panic, and blow them all to pieces. Flight officer Thomas Bennett came back from the cockpit. Alex pointed the gun at his chest and indicated the bomb. He repeated his demand, quote, We must not land at Brisbane. If you don't do as I say, I will blow everyone up. The hijacker again demanded to go to Singapore. Flight officer Thomas Bennett said the plane didn't have enough fuel. The hijacker said, well, what about Darwin? And flight officer Bennett said the farthest they could go would be Rockhampton. During this back and forth, Captain Dennis Lawrence, the off-duty pilot, had realised what was going on. He'd gone into the cockpit and gotten a crash axe. While flight officer Bennett had been keeping the hijacker busy with talk of fuel and destinations, he'd been edging ever closer to the man with the gun and the bomb. Now Captain Lawrence came out of the cockpit, giving Flight Officer Bennett the distraction he needed. In a flash, he surged forwards, grabbed at the wires and punched the hijacker in the face. The gun went off and a bullet sizzled past Flight Officer Bennett's ear before lodging in the ceiling. Captain Lawrence stepped in and whacked Alex across the head with the rubber axe handle and Flight Officer Bennett knocked the gun from his hand. The hostesses and a passenger named Warren Penny, himself a country charter pilot, came to help restrain the hijacker. Warren Penny would tell the Sydney Morning Herald that Captain Lawrence had shoved the axe at him and said, quote, if he moves, smash him across the skull. Warren Penny recalled his response, quote, I said, right, you're the captain, and I meant it too. If he'd batted an eyelid, I would have let him have it. Warren Penny would call it the diceiest few minutes of his 32 years in the air. Even so, at this point, Alex Hildebrand no longer posed any threat. He was dazed from the punch in the face and from being whacked in the head, and he didn't really come around until a few minutes before the plane touched down at Eagle Farm Airport. Warren Penny told the Sydney Morning Herald, I couldn't make much sense out of all the chap was saying, but he did say a couple of times, I've had it, and another time, am I going to die now? Alex Hildebrand wasn't about to die, even though he might have wanted to. He was arrested when he was brought off the plane and taken to the CIB for questioning by a Sergeant Hopgood. Remarkably, given how close they'd all come to being atomised 20,000 feet above the Earth, Warren Penny was one of the few passengers aboard Flight 408 who actually knew that anything untoward had happened. A Mr. J.K. Ford of Sydney was quoted in the Herald as saying, I didn't know anything about it until five minutes after I had been inside the airport terminal at Eagle Farm. A woman sitting near me said there'd been some excitement on the plane. That excitement on the plane resulted in Alex Hildebrandt being charged with five serious offences. The attempted murder of Flight Officer Bennett, depositing explosives on the plane in a manner that might cause damage, having gone armed in public in such a manner as to cause terror, having an explosive substance and having carried an unlicensed firearm. According to Sergeant Hopgood, Alex Hildebrand said during his interrogation that he'd wanted to exit Australia because, quote, I am sick of the capitalistic government here, and I wanted to go to Singapore, Red China, and Russia. Sergeant Hopgood asked Alex what had happened with the gun, and he allegedly responded, quote, I had the gun pointed at First Officer Bennett, and when he jumped me, I just pulled the trigger. Had he intended to kill him? Alex replied, quote, I intended to stop anybody who tried to take the gun and bomb from me and he certainly tried to do that. Alex allegedly said he'd used money his mother had given him to buy the 22 rifle. He'd gotten the gelignite and detonators in Cooma. Sergeant Hopgood asked if he was going to blow up the plane and he allegedly said, quote, Yes, that is right, only they fooled me. I thought they had bypassed Brisbane or I would have sent it up. Asked if he knew whether the bomb would have gone off if he'd touched the terminals of the bared wires, he'd said, of course I did. He'd then explained how he'd done his explosive test earlier that day. All of this seemed to leave no doubt that the quick thinking and bravery of flight officer Tom Bennett and off-duty captain Dennis Lawrence had saved the lives of 49 people, their own included. Alex Hildebrand was held without bail until his committal hearing on the 23rd of August in Brisbane's police court. After the magistrate heard testimony from witnesses, he asked Alex if he had anything to say. The accused rose to his feet and said, quote, They are nothing but a bunch of idiots, that's all. At his criminal trial on the attempted murder charge in October, the jury heard the evidence of the various crew members. But now, from the dock, Alex said that once on the plane, he'd realised how silly and ridiculous his plan had been. He said that if he'd been asked to, he would have given up the gun. Thing was, though, no one had asked that of him, so, in a way, it was kind of their own fault. His statement included this, quote, "'At that time, I did not want to shoot anyone, and I had no intention of shooting anyone.' It is true, I have a lot against this country. I have been here 10 years and I have seen a lot of misery. My father died a year and a half ago. For me, it is easy to leave this country. All I have to do is go to see the Russian embassy in Canberra and fill in a paper and wait three or maybe six months. I don't know why I did this silly thing. At the time, I don't think I was myself. Alex's defense counsel argued that he was a, quote, paranoid personality suffering from a persecution complex. It took the jury 45 minutes to find Alex Hildebrand guilty. He was sentenced to three years jail, and in November he was found guilty on the other charges and given another seven years. Flight officer Tom Bennett got the George Medal for his bravery, and Captain Dennis Lawrence received a commendation. Alex Hildebrand might have been as guilty as all get out, but he did have good lawyers, and in April 1961, they appealed the bomb-related convictions. The reason? They'd actually been committed in the air, over casino, in New South Wales. That meant the Queensland court had had no right to put him on trial, much less convict him. Amazingly, Alex was vindicated in court, The judge found the offences had occurred at 9.10pm and the plane was recorded as over casino at 9.12, 33 miles south of the Queensland border. So those convictions were set aside. But justice was patient. As soon as Alex stepped out of jail in Queensland in February 1963, he was arrested by New South Wales detectives. Tried two months later, he was sentenced to seven years. Alex still wasn't done. He appealed on the grounds that the judge had misdirected the jury. And yep, he won. Except it backfired. At his May 1964 retrial, Alex was again found guilty. Only this time, his sentence was increased to eight and a half years. As far as I've been able to determine, Australia's first skyjacker wasn't deported upon his release from jail, and he lived quietly after that. While Alex's crime wasn't the world's first commercial aviation hijacking, as is sometimes claimed, he was certainly ahead of the curve. A year later, there'd be the first armed skyjacking of a commercial flight over American soil when a pipeline worker used a gun to demand the plane's diversion to where he lived in Arkansas. In the decade that followed... There were 158 more such crimes in American airspace, including 130 in the so called golden age of hijackings between 1968 and 1972. They didn't slow down until 1973 when metal detectors and hand luggage searches became common. As for Australia, it'd be another 12 years after Flight 408 before another hijacker tried to commandeer a plane. And we'll look at that on another. Australia on this day. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Australia on this day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more.